It's good to be back. My wife and I were on vacation last week, and I'm thankful to God for Braden's grandfather preaching for us. Scott and Shelley's dad, uh, Pastor Jim Leary, is a friend of mine, and he's been a friend of this church really from the beginning. In fact, I stayed with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Leary when I was still living in Arizona and considering moving here. So I stayed in their house at least twice, and so I, I thank God for, um, for Jim and Luann. Uh, Jim, uh, Pastor Jim will be preaching actually four sermons for us this year, all on the theme of the life of Peter. So he covered Peter the sinner was what he preached on last Sunday, and he'll cover different uh, and important episodes in Peter's life throughout the rest of the series that we're doing this spring and summer in First Peter. So as we're learning from Peter's letter, we're also going to be seeing glimpses in Peter's life. That's the, the thought. Our text this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. This is the seventh sermon in the series in 1 Peter. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy word. 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25. Having purified your souls... By obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass." The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So far in God's word, let us pray. Father, as we begin to open up this passage of Scripture and see through your Holy Spirit how it applies to our lives as a church, individuals, to families, we pray that the words of my mouth as the preacher and each one of us as hearers, Lord, would be acceptable in your sight. Guide us and guard us. Encourage, inspire, and challenge us. For your, for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Mercy Hill was founded as a church with the determination that sinners, skeptics, and everyone seeking God's mercy would be able to find a home in our fellowship. For the record, community is another way of describing that, which is to say, as people from various backgrounds, with varying difficulties, at various points of faith, as they come together and share things in common, there is community. Another way to look at it is, as I was part of planting this church, I thought, let's make sure that we start a church that even I could be a member of. I mean, if, if I can get in, then anybody can get in. Community describes the life together that Jesus intends his people to, to enjoy. Enjoy. 
And by the way, as, as a reminder, Jesus came not for the saint, but for the sinner. Not for the healthy, but for the sick. Community is a close cousin to what we confess we believe and pursue in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the communion of saints. So it's a fundamental piece of Christian truth. There is no Christianity without community. Community is what we claim to believe when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is also called communion. It doesn't simply speak to a person's communion with God. We'll call that the vertical axis. It speaks to your communion with one another, which is why some godly saints will refrain from communion from time to time if they know they have an ought or a burden or an issue with another brother or sister in the fellowship. In fact, I've encouraged people, and I've seen people at times, get out of the communion line, go to the back, and say, please forgive me, brother. And then they come forward. What a beautiful thing that is. What a beautiful thing that is. Christian community is actually synonymous with church. Because church, though it is used as a shorthand for a physical structure, church is actually a people. It's a community. It stands for the elect, called out, sinners saved by grace, blood-bought men and women of the word. That's church. Therefore, church isn't just what we do in the church house here at 300 University Boulevard. Church is what we do when two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus in our homes, in the workplace, at the coffee shop, on campus, wherever we may be. And Zoom, by the way, and Google Meetup is a poor substitute for that. It can substitute for a while, but it's a poor substitute. Our church practices this idea of, we'll call it sort of dispersed community and then gathered community in terms of something we call family fellowship groups. And I think right now there are three or four family fellowship groups that are meeting. But it's an area of our church's ministry. I'll return to this a little bit later in the, in the sermon. It's not organized very well. It just isn't. So as a church, we're talking about Mercy Hill right now a little bit. We established in the beginning five milestones. The milestones were to gather as a local congregation. It's a, we're a new, new congregation. So we set out five targets to, to gather a local church, gather a group of people, to raise up local leaders, number two, by God's grace to have the financial resources to support our own local budget, that's number three. Number four would be to acquire a permanent piece of property, that's what we've done by God's grace here in this church house, number four. And then number five is to plant new churches. So those are the five, what we call the five milestones of Mercy Hill. And the problem is, as we have pursued these milestones over the last 15 years as a congregation, I have noticed a steady decline in our experience of community. And that's a problem. Because community isn't just an add-on. You know, small groups isn't just a ministry that you add on to the church. 
Community is who we are as Christians. It isn't an option. It's part of the base package. I think we're struggling with community as a church. I have a few thoughts as to why. First of all, I think COVID has hit churches in general hard. It hit our church particularly hard. At the beginning of COVID, my wife and I were praying and and hoping and trusting that this pandemic would bring out the best in the church. I think it did the opposite. I think it got used in the hand of the enemy, of the enemies of the church, in some ways to bring out our worst. And we're still struggling with the reverberations of COVID. Individuals who have left the church over our effort to walk the tightrope through those years. People who just got out of the habit of going to church. Some of you have started coming to the church since COVID to this church because you got out of habit of going to another church. So we still haven't healed, I think. In terms of community, I'm noticing in our church there are marriage issues. Our church is rife with marriage challenges. I'm just starting with my own. But our leaders have our hands full with marriage after marriage difficulty. And listen, if you're struggling in that most intimate of relationships with your husband or your wife, you're not going to be in a good position to engage and and bring life into the Christian community. This is a family of families. That's what the church is. So each individual family helps to make up the larger body of Christ at Mercy Hill. This is not new to our church, but young people have always struggled to enjoy community together. I mentioned it in my pastoral prayer, but if you're a teenager, if you're 15, 16, 17, if you're a college student, who am I? How are you supposed to get into community with other people if you don't even know who you are? And it was true when I was in high school. It's still true today. There are a wide range of interest in, in our youth, amongst our youth. They come from different schools with different backgrounds and different personalities. And cliques form. And cliques are the opposite of community. I'm going to hang out with this person and not that person. I like this person and not that person. And that's not unique to our teens. If I hadn't said any of this, and it may still happen even though I say it, after the benediction, and I, am, and I process out, if you are a regular attender at this church, you'll most likely go talk to someone you know. And that's not wrong per se, but it is the beginning of a click and the beginning of the destruction of community. And I think this is a factor as well. And then I'll stop being negative, okay? As a society, we are busier than we have ever been. And all the technology that is supposed to make our lives easier is making it harder. It's not making everything harder, but it's making life as I think God intends it to be lived harder. Real life, harder. It has the effect of squeezing more into less. 
And what suffers are the things that, that won't do that. You, you can't get face-to-face time, unscheduled, unstructured, unbounded time with a good friend. You can't squeeze that in. And so whether it's because you're overtaxed by work demands seven days a week, you're over-teched with all the connections that you have, all the subscriptions, all the smart things that your smartphone does, or you're just driving all over God's creation, going to work here, going to church here, and living here. That's a community killer. You know, my focus has changed too as a pastor. In the first five to ten years of the church, I wouldn't go a week without meeting, I mean, five, ten, fifteen new families or individuals. And guaranteed, every single week, I would share the gospel with at least two or three of them. And almost every week, someone would come to Christ. And now, I don't do that. So, even your pastor, who's sort of a cheerleader for community, is struggling in this area. I'll never forget an early version of our family fellowship group. Do you remember what they were called? Crowded houses. At our house at one point, I counted 65 people in our house. And only like 10 of them were from Mercy Hill. The rest were from our neighborhood. Just, it was a raggedy bunch of folks. All kinds of faith or non-faith talking about God. Christian community is only worthy of the name when in the midst of the fires of trial and trouble we cling to one another. Even when it requires repentance or humiliation. And that's another aspect of community. When you have trouble in your life, God has given you a pastor. God has given you elders, deacons, godly men and women in our church to help And if you allow the presence of sin in your relationships or in your personal life to rupture Christian community and you run from community, it's completely the opposite of what God intends. So, what's the solution? God's Word tells us that Christian community is essential, and we're going to actually focus on this over the next three weeks. This is a a mini-study, a mini-series in Christian community. This morning, the title of my message is Genuine Love. It's the absolute most crucial ingredient for Christian community. Genuine love. And our text tells us, in terms of this, where genuine love comes from, first of all. The first thing our text teaches about genuine love in Christian community is that it says that it comes from outside of you. Take a look at the text. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart 
since you have been born again. It's a long sentence. It's actually more than... It's, there, there, there's, there's more than one sentence here. But this idea in verse 23 shows us that the genuine love that is essential for Christian community comes from outside of you. You're being born again. A baby doesn't cause itself to be born. Something happens to the child. No one can will himself to be born. It happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. The new birth is outside of you. This isn't the first time Peter mentions being born again. In verse 3 of chapter 1, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This tells us that the genuine love that Peter is describing in verse 22, which is essential for Christian community, first and foremost, is a gift of God. God has to do something to us so that we're something besides selfish sinners who run from problems and hate other people. And that thing that he does is the new birth. It's a birth from above. It's a penetrating, invading, invasion of the control room of your life. Ezekiel calls it a heart surgery. How can you love someone from, with a sincere heart if your heart is broken and corrupt? Ezekiel says, how can you love someone with a heart of flesh if you have a heart of stone? So what the Holy Spirit does in a sovereign work that theologians call monergistic, which means he, he's alone when he does this, the Holy Spirit sees us running away from God. He grabs us by the scruff of the neck he reaches in ever so gently, or not so gently in some people's case, and removes our heart of stone, and he gives us a heart of flesh, and thump, 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 genuine love begins to flow out of our lives. It's a process that begins outside of us. And Peter doubles down on this external quality of genuine love because he says you have been born again verse 23 not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God and then he says the word of the Lord verse 25 remains forever unlike everything else in our lives which is constantly breaking down and disappearing and then he says this is the good news that was preached to you there's a close connection between the new birth and the preaching of the word, the gospel. Here's how it works. Jesus has seen fit to take a sinner and inspire him, not perfectly, but faithfully, as he preaches the gospel, new birth happens. Jesus died for your sins. He rose again from the third day. Believe this and you are saved. That's a preaching of the gospel. And when Jesus preaches through sinful men that message of hope and salvation, sinners are changed because a word comes from outside of them into their minds 
and mystically, supernaturally, powerfully, sovereignly changes their heart and it starts beating with genuine love for the first time. That's the Christian faith. But it doesn't stay outside of us. It comes from within us as well. The first has to be outside of us. That's the initial movement of genuine love. We love because He first loved us. That's Scripture. But once He loves us, once we receive His love, once He's he's affected that change in us, we have to do something. So it's not a matter of God's sovereignty or my responsibility. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God needs to affect this change. Yes, I am, I am a, a sinner unable to save myself. But I need to believe. I need to trust. There, I need to do something myself. And the Scripture tells us this in verse 22. Having purified, consecrated, set yourself apart by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. James and Peter are back-to-back in the Bible. In fact, if you turn the page, there it is. But they're not just right next to each other in your Bibles. Thematically, James and Peter overlap. And what does James say about living faith versus dead faith? He says, faith without works is dead. If you've been born again, if, if you have a new heart, if genuine love is beating in your, in your breast and coursing through your veins with the blood of Christ, you've seen Him on the cross and you say, He died for me! And you believe Him and you trust Him and you, you say, He's my, my Savior and my future is, is safe with Him and even as He's risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of God, that is my eternal destiny and you do nothing about it. You're either a sinning Christian or you're not saved. So it requires consecration. Think about, uh, I mentioned Jonathan ran a race. I was track and field, so there's a lot that goes into running a race. And most of it happens before the day of the race, including getting a good night's sleep and your diet the night before and the weeks and months and years of training and layering and tapering and working through injuries and rehabbing, the whole, a whole nine. This is consecration. When you get ready for a big race, a sectional, a regional, a state championship, you better consecrate yourself. You have to be laser-focused. And if we understand this in sports, and we do, We need to understand it for our faith. Having purified ourselves, Joshua 3, 5 says, uh, consecrate yourselves and and prepare to behold the wonder of God. It's the same word. Consecrate yourselves, purify your souls. How? By obedience to the truth. In verse 14 Peter said, chapter 1, verse 14, 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy. That's what he's talking about. Here's, here's how it connects to community. This internal decision, this internal work that you have to do, if you're actively sinning, you are killing community. You have no appetite for being around Christians, first of all, because they're always talking about the Bible and praying for each other and how can I help you, brother, and all these things. No. Plus, it's just, it's convicting. You feel guilty. You feel dirty. Your conscience won't, won't let you get away with it if, if God's kind to you. If you're not actively obeying the truth, you're destroying Christian community. The fellowship of the saints depends on each one of us individually pulling our weight, hating sin, killing sin, repenting of sin, asking for help, confessing it, admitting it. So you consecrate yourself as obedient children. This phrase children is important. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. Children implies father. Verse 17, call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, verse 18, from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. The empty traditions of your fathers, you need to actively consecrate yourself to the service of your heavenly father by dumping the traditions of your earthly father inasmuch as they are empty, vain, worldly, and pulling you away from God. So this involves, specifically involves, family choices. As I think about who I am and who I was raised to be, in light of the new birth and the new heart that's beating in my chest, am I calling to be part of Christian community and to show genuine brotherly love? I need to reevaluate all of the traditions I have inherited from my fathers in light of my heavenly father's new call on my life. And if you're just sort of steaming into church, kind of rolling in on cruise, and you're like, yeah, I'm good, I got Jesus, and okay. No. Consecrate yourselves. <clears throat> I know many of you did not grow up in a, in a great family situation. The baggage that you carry stays with you, doesn't it? Consecrate yourself. That baggage is, is most likely hindering your usefulness for this Christian community. And if there's going to be renewal and reformation and revival and refreshment by the Holy Spirit and a genuine Christian community that will cause the ears of Glassboro and this Chestnut Ridge neighborhood to ring and people's skin to tingle and people to say, what is going on? If that's going to be true, then we're going to be people who are reexamining and unloading this baggage from the empty way of life that we have inherited and filling ourselves up with a genuine love that comes from God and we're sharing with one another.
This isn't Peter's idea either. Jesus said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is the, the family dynamic of the faith. And it's right in our text. By obedience to the truth, verse 22, for a sincere brotherly love. That's one word in the original. Philadelphian. Pretty cool, huh? Now, I consider myself from South Jersey, but here I'm a Philadelphian. Brotherly love. It's actually a theme in Peter. Will you look with me? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. The brotherhood is shorthand for the Christian community. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. And verse 9, resist him, that is Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's shorthand for the church. Your commitment to the church requires sincere brotherly love, which means you need to cut the ties from your earthly family inasmuch as they are dragging you away from Jesus. That's what that means. We even see it in the Old Testament. Jeremiah threatened the people of Judah that their identity as the covenant people was insufficient to help them remain in the land. They needed to be faithful. And in the line of Abraham, God chooses Jacob. He loves Jacob. And his brother, Esau, he hates. So we see in one family, a covenant family, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent dividing the family. So the sincere brotherly love in the community of Christians requires you to do careful examination of your family background and that you bring fresh, spirit-filled, heaven-sent love to this assembly and not just the empty traditions of your parents. This is a new community. It's a community of faith. And too many of us bring baggage from our family to the assembly of saints and drag it down. And I'm including myself in that. Having been born again, we work together, we cooperate with God so that true, genuine, brotherly love is expressed. So it comes from outside of us and it comes from inside of us. But what does it look like? Look at our text. Genuine love looks earnest. Love one another, verse 22, earnestly from a pure heart. Earnest is another word for intense, intentional, intentional. What is your intention this morning? Did you come to this service this morning intending to bring a blessing to someone else? Or did you come intending to take a blessing? Did you come with your veins so filled with the blood of Christ and your heart beating with genuine brotherly love that you're ready to donate a pint of blood to someone in the room, spiritually speaking? Or are you come anemic? Did you get just barely drag yourself across the threshold or maybe someone dragged you? 
We have a, a wood-burning stove. If you've been over to our house, you know, actually, Polly has the wood-burning stove. And earnest, an earnest fire is not one there's a lot of smoke and not a lot of flame. An earnest fire is a lot of flame, red, orange flame, and not a lot of smoke. And I notice our stove takes a while to heat up. In the beginning, you can put your hand on it. But after about an hour of feeding wood in that thing, you can't even get close to it because it's hot. So someone who's earnest with genuine Christian love is a hot stove. It takes a while. It takes some preparation, some concentration. And it takes intentionality to continue to feed that stove. Your love must be earnest, intentional, fervent, burning hot. That's the expectation, according to Peter. One of my favorite passages on this is in Romans 12. Let's look there. Romans chapter 12 is a beautiful picture of what the church community should look like. I'm just going to read 9 and 10. And I realize I have a lot more material to cover and I'm running out of time. So let's see what we can get covered. This is a three-part series. So I may push some of this material to next Sunday. But Romans 12, 9 and 10. Take a look. Let love be genuine. That's what Peter's saying, isn't it? Genuine love. Sincere. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. So Peter tells us, back to 1 Peter, it's from the heart. From the heart means sincere. It's without hypocrisy. That's why I gave the sermon title Genuine Love, because Peter tells us that we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, sincere, brotherly love, genuine love. Genuine also has, a, has an aspect, though, of being permanent. You know, if it's genuine currency, you can take it to the bank, and not just today and tomorrow, but for the rest of our natural lives, hopefully. So genuine love also has this aspect of being secure and strong, trustworthy, dependable, not fickle. You know, you expect that in the workplace or with your classmates, right? Somebody says that he'll help you with a project and then he helps her with the project. Even among siblings, there's bickering and squabbling. But in the church, we're expecting love to be strong and secure. Both strong and secure. Dependable, trustworthy, genuine. We get this from the passage because this idea of grass, withering, flower, flower petals dropping. Flesh there in verse 24, all flesh is like grass. Is, flesh is describing our world, fallen as it is, and fading away. All of society, all of reality, human existence as created by the fall of man. That's flesh for Peter. 
And Peter tells us that Jesus came in the flesh. He entered our sinful reality, not to stay here and to keep it here, but to elevate us, to make it permanent and secure in him. So genuine love is attached to Christ who came in the flesh to redeem us from this fallen world. And so you should expect when you come into the fellowship, both on Sundays in the church house and in any other thing that we do as a congregation, to experience dynamic, heaven-tinged love that has a quality of permanence and security and strength that you can't find anywhere else. You You should expect to see it. I'll never forget the first Bible study I went to in college. I walked into a room, and I could, I could feel it. These people have something I don't have. I want what they have. Sincere brotherly love. Well, I began this morning with some complaints about our community, and I know that's hard to hear, a pastor. If you're a visitor, I I know it's hard to hear, negatives. But I don't want to end on a negative. I don't want to make the mistake of highlighting our struggles with Christian community, which I've attempted to do, of overlooking the fact that we do many things well as a church. In fact, one of the things I consistently hear about our congregation is that we're a warm and welcoming community when when people come for the first time. I consistently hear that. And they tell me the preaching isn't bad either, so, you know. (laughs) And he's humble, too. The problem with negative is that you can overlook many shoots, buds, and blossoms at springtime that are peeking out of the ground or about to come out of the ground. The danger when you begin in a negative manner is you can forget how faithful God has been to us in the past. And I'll never forget the way in which we displayed Christian community when Doris was diagnosed with cancer. I've been in ministry for almost 25 years. And I can say I've seen that kind of community maybe two or three other times. It was a sight to behold. People didn't ignore a hurting member. They consecrated themselves and were obedient to the truth. I saw you sacrifice time, money, sleep, comfort. You had to do things and help and be present in ways that really, really, really took you out of your schedule. People were sincere in their efforts. You could just see it. It was infectious. It was contagious. And we spent regular, everyday time together. Like, pop in, stop by, hanging out time. Not looking at your watch time kind of time. This is the sort of strong and secure love that can only come from heaven. And people prayed together. We were praying on our knees, regularly, out loud, crying prayers So while that was a great example of genuine love and Christian community for our fellowship, we don't want it to just show up when people are dying, right? I mean, people are dying. That's the point. Dying on the inside, broken and hurting and stuck in our addictions and our confusions, our doubts, our fears, hesitations. 
We are dying, and we need each other, and we need the genuine love if we're going to grow and improve in this area. So what do we need to do? I want to encourage you very briefly as I conclude, begin with Christ. If you're going to love one another with genuine Christian love, you need Christ. You need to believe the good news that Jesus died for me. He died for your sins. Your guilt, your shame is eliminated. My dad reminded me, he didn't just die for your past sins. Your present and your future sins are all accounted for 2,000 years ago by that man on the cross. Jesus loves you. He died for you. Believe the good news. You need Christ in your life. And then begins to beat that heartbeat I was talking about of genuine love. Then courses through your veins, Scripture, promise, and praise. And you'll have so much of that joy in your life that you'll want to share it with other people. He'll have given you such shade from the heat of your conscience and your failures that you'll have room to welcome someone else under that shade tree. So begin with Christ. Secondly, repent. Consecration involves repentance. In order to obey the truth, you have to refresh your repentance. It's a library book that's due, friends. You've got to go back to the counter, look the lady in the eye and say, I owe you 25 cents. May I please renew this? Refresh your repentance. Do this by confessing your sins to someone today. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, one of my favorite verses for the church. Bear one another's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. Be a burden bearer today for someone or ask someone to love you enough to, carry, to help carry this burden which is too heavy for you to bear alone. Begin with Christ. Begin with repentance. Instead of chit-chatting after church, share your testimony. Share your burden. Ask someone to step aside. And let's experience genuine love in Christian community. Let's pray. Father, as we close the service in prayer, we, we see that we as a, as a fellowship have much to learn, much room to grow. And we're not the only ones. Churches across the country, across our area, in Glassboro and Pittman, Mullica Hill and Washington Township and points beyond, Lord. All churches are struggling with this. And so, Lord, we're praying that you would work your mighty work amongst us. Send your Holy Spirit in a fresh and powerful way. Start with me. Start in my family. Start in my marriage. Continue, Lord, through our elders and their wives, their children, our deacons, Lord, our leading women and godly staff and ministry leaders. Lord, start with us. May we model as leaders and as Christians genuine and sincere brotherly love from the heart, earnestly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro.
off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.